Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes. We are very excited for today's episode. All of you action research scholars and practitioners and students and people interested in action research, we've got a real treat for you today. We'd like to welcome Ernie Stringer onto the podcast. Ernie Stringer, after an early career as a primary teacher and school principal, Ernie was a lecturer in education at Curtin University of Technology in Western Australia. From the mid-1980s, based at Curtin Center for Aboriginal Studies, he worked collaboratively with Aboriginal staff and community people to develop a wide variety of innovative and highly successful education and community development programs and services. His work with government departments, community-based agencies, business corporations, and local governments assisted them to work more effectively with Aboriginal people. In recent years, as visiting professor at the University of New Mexico and Texas A&M University, and as visiting scholar at Cornell University, he taught research methods, courses, and or engaged in projects with African-American and Hispanic community and neighborhood groups. As a UNICEF consultant, he recently engaged in a major project to increase parent participation in schools in East Timor. Until recently, he was a member of the editorial board of the Action Research Journal and past president of the Learning Action Research Association. Ernie, that was quite a mouthful. You've got quite an accomplished accomplished career. Thanks for coming on today. So another face of Ernie Stringer is that he's married to a lovely wife, Rosalie, a social worker he married in 1964. Do the math on that one. Now with three grandsons, four delightful grandchildren, and still living in the town he was born in, which is quite remarkable, I think, these days. So Indeed I- it uh, is. So where is it that you're joining us from? Which town is that? Fremantle, Western Australia. One of my American professors said, Fremantle, Western Australia, he said, if that's not at the end of the world, you must be able to see the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for uh, being patient with us as we coordinate all of this. It's not easy coordinating with somebody on the other side of the world. It's been lovely to meet you all. We had such a lovely conversation the other day in preparation for this podcast. We ended it by saying, man, we should have just recorded that. I feel like we can just keep that conversation rolling. You've got such a rich history and experience and career. So with all of that said, why, why don't we just kick it off? Do you mind sharing with us and our listeners how it is that you got involved with action research and perhaps why you decided to call your work action research? Okay, there's a longer story than the one I told you previously. <laughs> and the genesis of my interest and, and activities in action research relate to my very early career as a school teacher 
when myself and Rosalie went to be, were the two teachers at a very remote Aboriginal community. In that community, people were coming out of the desert, was first contact people, still living their traditional hunter-gatherer life in the bush, living in the leaf shelters, hunting for their food and so on. The children came out of the bush into our classrooms and were expected to teach a Western curriculum using the methods that we had learned to teach for middle-class Australians in the city. And we were only there for two years, but what I realised at that time was that everything we were doing was wrong. Not everything, but basically the approach to teaching just didn't suit the purposes of the children that we were teaching. So that sent me on a what became a lifelong journey to say, how can we provide a decent education, an appropriate education for people who are so very different from us? In the end, I went back to university, did another degree in research in education, a very focused type of research, which we call quantitative research or experimental research. It was a good background because I now feel as if I've got a, a, a handle on of different approaches to research which are appropriate for different situations, for different questions that you need to ask about any event or situation. So that was the background, if you like to think of it, of me searching for an appropriate way for teaching. So I decided to do postgraduate studies in the US because I thought, oh, the US have been dealing with this situation for many years. They must know how to do it. <laughs> and I discovered they didn't, but I did get a grounding, a really thorough grounding and learned about qualitative research, which was for me very exciting because it was about working with people to understand the way they constructed their worlds and how they responded to different facets of their worlds. When I got back, I went and taught as a lecturer in uh, what's now Curtin University. And so I passed on all my wisdom that I'd learned in graduate school to the teachers that were preparing for their careers. After a few years, I decided to go out during a university break and follow up some of the teachers that I'd taught in who'd gone to context where they were teaching Aboriginal kids. And I discovered that my teaching was a remarkable failure and that those students of mine as teachers were merely following the rules of the system and making no progress. In 1984, I think it was, uh, two Aboriginal men approached me and asked me if I would help them start a Centre for Aboriginal Studies at that university. Now, at that time, there were no Aboriginal people employed by the university in any way, and there were probably maybe two Aboriginal students. It was a, a national disgrace, in fact. But I said yes, and the short story is that we sat down and figured out what we needed to do. We were given strong support by the university administration, and we decided that on what became the principles for that centre. It had to be led by Aboriginal people. Leadership and decisions had to be made by Aboriginal people. Non-Aboriginal people were there to provide them with the uh, skills they would need to get done what they decided needed to be done. 
and in the process learn how to do it themselves. So that was a very strong basis for me. The short story is that when we started developing, we initially didn't provide any programs, a university programs. What we did was to, in fact, to provide services, what I now call developmental services to Aboriginal agencies. And that became very successful. The need for Aboriginal agencies to have to develop the skills they needed to run effectively was very great at that stage. So we found ways of providing them with the ways of going about getting skills development, which was not to sit down in a, in a classroom and be lectured at, but to work with them in their agencies to find out what it is they wanted them to know how they could acquire the skills to sometimes demonstrate some of those skills of organization and so on. In the end, we started to call that community-based research and development. So the other part of our, our learning principles was to be, like Aboriginal people, very much oriented towards working with a community or a group. And so everything we did was not directed to getting individual people to be skilled, but groups to be skilled. And so the orientation was, we learned a lot from an approach to developmental work called community development, which some of you will know about. The processes of community development about not doing stuff for the community, but providing the resources which will enable the community or the group to do things for themselves. So that, that was a very strong orientation. I, in fact, in the process, learned a quite different approach to what we call research. And that is to have research not directed by questions that researchers asked, but by questions which the people in the situation ask about their own situation. Not about problems and issues that researchers were interested in, but problems and issues that needed resolution by the people in their situation. I'm trying to think of a, a short example to give an example of this. In one, possibly one agency was a, a children's home where Aboriginal children who no longer could live with their families were cared for. And they called us in because they were concerned because all of the staff were non-Aboriginal, all of the leadership was non-Aboriginal, and their care wasn't working very well. So we came in and worked through with the staff, the non-Aboriginal staff, to have them figure out what to do about the situation. They ended up deciding they needed to employ some Aboriginal staff and in the long run, they made many changes which resulted in that agency becoming an Aboriginal agency with Aboriginal staff caring for Aboriginal students. So that's just a, a small example of, of the sort of stuff that we did. I didn't call that action research at that stage. This story really resonates with me uh, a lot. We've talked about, and Adam and I have mentioned, on occasion we both work in the high Andes of Peru and with what are termed indigenous communities here or Quechua speaking communities here. And some of the things that you talked about really have a lot of resonance here. Really, like for me at least, the way in which you identified, you used a productively critical perspective to identify some of the issues with 
what it means to work with community, not being from the community itself, but by also having something to offer the community. And I thought, I just wanted to highlight that because I think it's really important, that criticality, but that productive criticality. It's not criticism just for criticism's sake. It's criticism to make changes in the relational dynamics, to build communities and build groups that actually can work together to productively change and improve their lives. So I just wanted to highlight that part because also the example that you gave and, and the issues that you noticed are issues that I know Adam and I have both noticed when we came down, which was much more recently than when you were doing your work, but it's fun to see some of that intergenerational transfer of knowledge in some ways and how much further we still need to go. This has been really insightful, even just this short story about how things change, but they don't change very quickly and how the diffusion of, of knowledge and perspectives and values is something that happens over time, but that actually does create real change in the world. So I didn't want to interrupt your flow too much. You were talking about some of these projects that you were engaging in, and I think that it would be really helpful to have our listeners hear a couple, maybe one or two examples of projects that you've been working on that use action research. One of the ones that we talked about earlier was this breakfast club. And then the second one would be how you developed the Center for Aboriginal Studies in Curtin University, because I think that the action research that you use there is really powerful, often because action research is seen as a smaller project, like it's in the classroom or it's in a community of a group of maybe 10 to 15 people. But action research can be used in small groups and it can be used in large groups. The interesting part about the breakfast story is that my wife, some years ago, towards the end of her career, decided she wanted to finish her career in the field. And she said, Ernie, I can get a position as a community social worker at a remote community called Warburton. Now, Warburton is way out in the middle of the desert, far from any towns or city. So it's a very tiny Aboriginal community with about 600 people. More than 500 are just Aboriginal people living their lives. But it's a very poor community. The people still live a lifestyle that is very much oriented towards their traditional life. They are frustrated by the Western services that supposedly service them. They're frustrated, as I was to discover, with the schooling, which is still I discovered when I went there, just as bad as the school system that I saw in 1964, where you have white teachers teaching a Western curriculum using traditional teaching methods to Aboriginal children whose way of life, whose behavioural, whose values, whose understanding the world is so different that they just don't fit into the classrooms that are provided for them in a cultural sense. In talking to one of the senior men in the community one day, I said, oh, what do you think about the school? Oh, it's dreadful, he said. We really need to do something about that school. And I said, perhaps you'd like to come and talk to me about that. I'll come and see you this afternoon. So <laughs> that afternoon, he turned up with a group of people who happened to be the community council. There's about eight of them. And we sat in around my kitchen table and they talked about how terrible the school was and how inadequate the education that child, children were getting. I might say English is a second or third language for all of these people. They're not well versed in, in literacy skills. And, and so I said to them, or well, maybe you should talk to the, the principal of the school. Would you like me to arrange a meeting? Yes. When can you be available? So we arranged the meeting. 
the short story is the outcome of that meeting was the men and the women in meeting with the principal decided what they could do to improve the situation was to provide a school breakfast for the children. Now, <laughs> the reason for that is that uh, school started before the community was awake. So most of the parents were still in bed when school started and children often came to school with having had no breakfast. And we all know the story of what that means. Hungry kids sitting there, not able to focus and so on. So they said, we can do a school breakfast. They nominated that. They also nominated four grandmothers who could do that, that they had relationships with. So the, the, the background of that is school breakfasts are quite common around the state, but they're generally run by non-Aboriginal teachers, social workers or police. What happened in Warburton was that I provided the resource in my own person to help the local people to organise and deliver the school breakfast. That became very successful. The kids would come to school early, they would line up and wait for their breakfast. They'd be happy because their grandmothers and then their mothers and their aunts would be at school at different times to assist with the breakfast. And it became a wonderfully energised activity because the women just seemed to know how to do this. And I said to them, how did you learn to all these skills to be able to deliver a, a lovely breakfast to the kids? And they said, oh, we learned at a high school. And some of them had uh, left the community and gone to a high school in a country town and had been trained as domestic servants. So they had a set of skills that they knew they could use. I didn't have to do any of the work <laughs> of the school breakfast except to help them to organise, to find out how to get the funds to do that and so on. So that became, I can give you an image of what these women looked like. They became known as the breakfast ladies. They ended up developing a service which was available to the whole community. Any event that needed food served, they would do the job. And then it became bigger than that. It became a regional catering service. And then from that, other things started to develop. Uh, home and community care, where they provided meals for elderly residents, where they provided uh, a laundry service for elderly re residents, and um, a number of other things. I, I won't go on because it, it became a, a big project with multiple uh, arms. The energy in the women and the delight they had in serving the breakfast to their children was wonderful. And from that grew many other things. The lessons for me were just reinforced what I knew. That is, getting a school breakfast might be important, but getting the people themselves to be able to deliver the school breakfast was a, an enormously powerful and significant event for them. They did not sit back and watch other people make provision for their own children. So that's the wonderful uh, aspect of the story of the school breakfast. The most important thing that your story showed, in my mind at least, was the willingness to communicate, to listen, to provide the services requested by the people, which were services that you could support with, but that, that weren't inappropriate. And this productively critical approach, seeing all of the ways in which having a different kind of that Western mindset was inappropriate. 
for actually doing the work that needed to be done. And, and I think that going how taking what can be considered in some ways this training to be domestic servants as like a colonial problematic experience and transforming it into something that could be very productive because the power shifted. The power shifted from the hands of the people who were doing the training to make these women have certain skills that they wanted to having the women who were in this breakfast club to run their own service and to, to use what they learned in a way that actually served the purposes of the community rather than serving the purposes of somebody else. So that's what I heard from your story and I thought that's really powerful. I actually have a video that Roz, my graduate student, made of the women at work. And this is not at the school breakfast. This is at a regional school's sports event where they were providing food for 300 kids for four days, morning, noon and night. We are the Wubutan Breakfast Minna. With their program, Nilijara Kool Mirka Banyatai. This means making good food at Wubutan School. The Wubutan School Breakfast Program has been running for two years. Since it started, we have been doing lots of other activities, including cooking food, events in the community. So I, I just thought I'd like to give you a, a little flavour of what the people were like, how they spoke, what was important to them through that video. Another aspect of that was that they loved the fact that they were doing this and people outside of the community, the agencies started to say, wow, can those ladies come and give a presentation at our conference? Can those ladies do a video conference with us? And so we had to train up the ladies to tell their stories in very simple form and present them. They became quite adept at that over a period of time. So once again, the whole set of skills related to public speaking, which was really a push for Aboriginal people from these contexts, but the, the, the ladies picked that up wonderfully well. So that's just another aspect of how do people get to tell their stories? There's a whole range of ways in which we can work with people to give them the capacity to tell their story because they love telling their stories about what they're doing. And in the process, they learn more about what they're doing and how they're going about doing their work. Just a, a lovely set of results to come out of a small meeting. What do you think about the school? <laughs> Ernie, I have a quick follow-up question for you before we hear more about your work in, in higher education and working with Aboriginal studies. So given this is the Action Research Podcast, we often try and circle back and look at things from like a methodological lens or even a practical lens. So I just, I want to follow up with respect to the Breakfast Club for Children project. And when you were just getting that started, presumably this wasn't a time where there was literature on action research and community development and responsible development, right? You made the point, which to me stood out, which was that for you, what was important was that you weren't the one that were providing breakfast, but rather you were able to create buy-in amongst the folks in which you were working with to provide the breakfast in the breakfast club. Can you give us a little bit of insight from a process-oriented standpoint about 
how you did that, like the processes or dialogue that you engaged with the folks that you were working with so that it wasn't a top-down approach, but rather a more bottom-up approach? In my own consciousness, I realized that through my experience that me going and talking about Aboriginal issues, me doing stuff about Aboriginal issues, didn't have much impact until I started including Aboriginal people themselves in the talking about and the doing of actions. And then as I realised that they were very capable of doing the talking and taking the actions, I started to learn how to step back to stand by them and assist and support them. So an example of that is soon after we started the Centre for Aboriginal Studies, the government department responsible for welfare services approached us and said, we have most of our clients in this state, Aboriginal people, but all of the staff, pretty much all of the staff, most of the staff, certainly all the professional staff are non-Aboriginal. And we would like them to get some training in ways of working more appropriately with Aboriginal people. So we worked with the department and with our Aboriginal staff to develop a program for non-Aboriginal people. It required us to say, Aboriginal people need to present this program. And they said, oh, we're, we're sorry, but we, we haven't got any, uh, any Aboriginal people who've got professional status. We said, yes, but you've got Aboriginal administrative personnel, Aboriginal people who sweep the floors and so on. <laughs> oh, we couldn't use those in a, a professional training program. And we said, that's the way it's got to work. We'll demonstrate how that can be used. So we demonstrated with, we first of all trained up a small group of Aboriginal people from that department to deliver a program on working appropriately with Aboriginal people. It worked wonderfully well. They trained, they trialed, and then they presented a program. And then they presented another one, and then another one, demonstrating that people with no professional status could actually act as trainers because of their, in fact, incredible depth of skills and knowledge about Aboriginal contexts how to go about working, how to go about interacting with, how to go about developing relationships with Aboriginal people, and how to plan what to do with Aboriginal people about issues and problems that are being experienced by Aboriginal people in their contexts. So that became a statewide project, and eventually we were able to set that up and uh, train groups of Aboriginal people nationally. <laughs> What we were doing was to, in this context, implement the principles and the processes and practices that we'd learned internally, how to go about doing work in a university with Aboriginal people who had no academic credentials and to provide them with the support they needed to operate and to learn how to run programs, how to develop programs, how to do training programs, how to teach using appropriate teaching practices. Find out first what the issues that people are interested or concerned about. Next, what can they do 
about that themselves, what skills, what resources do they have, and to work with what they have in order to assist them to do what they wanted to do. And that's been part of my action research practice and process now for many years. But we set it up in that Centre for Aboriginal Studies to do that and show that, yes, Aboriginal people with their depth of understanding and knowledge of Aboriginal ways of living, of the Aboriginal community, had a wealth of knowledge and experience that was necessary, foundationally necessary, to any work that's to be done in an Aboriginal context. It's me being open to learning from them and with them. That's great. And I just want to quickly, just to highlight this point, just that the openness and the self-reflection, but the self-reflection that is communal. I think that's a really foundational part of action research is self-reflection where you're reflecting on what you're learning and you're learning in community. And I think that that's what you said is just the learning that you do is requires a, a level of humility and a level of self-reflection to be able to hear people. So I just wanted to point that out. It's a very important part. It's still part of my world, a project I'm engaged in now, writing a history of that Centre for Aboriginal Studies. I'm doing so under the direction and with the support of, a, of 10 Aboriginal people, very senior Aboriginal people who worked in the, in the centre at various times. And as I've written parts of that history, which is largely me getting the information from, through interviews from Aboriginal people. I write the text out and then show it to my what, what's called my Aboriginal editorial board. You briefly mentioned Curtin Centre for Aboriginal Studies, and I didn't want to gloss over that because I think it's an important example of your work in which compared to the breakfast club for children which i wouldn't say is small scale you said it ended up becoming a state program but it sounds like the work that you've done in, in higher education and at curtains was a little bit is a little bit more representative of a, a systemic approach if you will to use modern day terms to action research in higher education. So is, I was just wondering if, if we could quickly talk about the Center for Aboriginal Studies that you were had such a big role in, in, in creating is my understanding. And if you have anything to share about what that looks like, such a concrete example of action research in higher education, which we're all proponents for at this point. Okay. So I'm telling the story now in a, a book that I'm writing for the editorial, Aboriginal editorial board that encapsulates the history. So you can, you can read that in full when it comes out from Routledge uh, later this year. The working title may change a little, but it's called Higher Education for Indigenous People, subtitled Integrating Culture, Identity and Self-Determination. The genesis for that was, as I previously said, two Aboriginal men asking me to help them get a Centre for Aboriginal Studies. And the initiation of it with some small funding given by the university, the Vice-Chancellor, in fact, from his special funds. With five people, including a half-time secretary, we started, first of all, continuing a tertiary preparation program for Aboriginal people. That became very important. But that wasn't working very well because people get a, a year's preparation, go into a university system that was still working 
very much according to Western uh, standards, the language, the approaches to teaching and learning. Everything was alien, not everything, but so much of it was alien to Aboriginal people that not many of them went into university studies. Those that did dropped out very quickly. Within two years, the first director of that centre or head of the Centre for Aboriginal Studies, as it was called at that those stage, said, Ernie, we have to get a university program that is suited for Aboriginal people to provide higher education for my people. And I thought, oh, gosh, Trevor, we can't do that. <laughs> he was very intent on it. He, the person responsible for planning, another Aboriginal one of the team, mapped out a plan for what the centre might do, including continuing the preparation program, but developing a program and the areas that they chose, which emerged from the community-based services we were providing were management and community development. So we set out planning a program and it took at least two years. We did a, a journey around to schools and institutions that were providing education programs for Aboriginal people, post-secondary institutions, and got ideas about, oh, okay, we could do things this way. Oh, we could go organize things that way. So in the end, we had a plan for a program that was so different from any university program in the country that as we started to go through the processes of accreditation, there was all sorts of pushback. Oh no, you can't do that way. That's against university policy. And I'd say, no, it's not against university policy. It's against university common practice, but it sits within the policy of the university. Okay. Not just myself, but this eventually became necessary and so wanted that in, and governments were changing their ideas about what programs might look like. We started to get funding from the government to develop this program. It was very different. Students came to campus for two weeks at a time, about three times a year. Block release did very intensive work. And the intensive work was workshopping, very little lecturing, not much focus on writing essays although we certainly worked on upgrading their academic skills, especially their literacy skills. But the focus was on developing the skills of management, developing the skills of community development. And this was very necessary, many of them working either in Aboriginal agencies or government agencies servicing Aboriginal people. The approaches to, I've just been writing about this, we called it a competency-based approach to learning. And that is the focus was on the competencies needed to do management, the competencies needed, that skills and knowledge to do good community development. And those two meshed. Perhaps you could say just one approach to management. You could say it's a well-organized approach to community development. That change from focusing on lectures and essays and so on to learning projects within workshops and then going out, setting up 
projects within their communities and their agencies and their families and so on meant that they could go out and do the work that they'd learned to do in those blocks when they came to the, the university. It really meant that they could stay and maintain their relationships and their responsibilities to their families and their communities, while at the same time acquiring the skills to do that work more effectively. The students absolutely loved it. The lecturers who were brought in, and we brought in those who had experience and were open to different approaches to education. The students, as I've been hearing for the last couple of years, having interviewed many of those early students, just absolutely loved it. They flooded into the course. The first intake, we had 30 graduates in a university that used to graduate one Aboriginal person every three years. Within a few years, we had 200 Aboriginal students from around the nation. And uh, that eventually grew to about 400, I think, just for this one program. So we started doing other programs. It, be it, it became something that absolutely changed the, the nature of the way universities dealt with Aboriginal people. I can't say that all universities used our model. They didn't but we find that block release programs have become quite common now. We're amongst the first to use them. Competency-based learning, not so much, but it's, it's crept into university systems. There's much more focus on actually detail the competencies needed. And students tend to learn about the competencies, but not so much given practice in doing those competencies. So that's basically how, by sticking closely to our principles of making sure that what we were doing was fit for the purposes. As one of my Aboriginal colleagues used to say, you need not to fit the student to the university, but fit the university to the student. Very much what we were on about at that Centre for Aboriginal Studies. So that became, within uh, a few years, nationally, recognised as the, the, the premier university for educating and providing education, higher education, university education for Aboriginal and other Indigenous peoples. Amazing. So as we start to get close to wrap up uh, this podcast, and we could go on and on forever. It's sure. just, it's, I'm just sitting here like in awe listening to your stories, but we've heard from you a little bit about how you got into action research. You've shared with us some really rich stories about your work in the field and career as a practitioner and scholar. How about a question looking forward based on, based on your career and how you've seen the field of action research change, where do you see it going? Where do you hope to see action research as a field of investigation and practice going moving forward? The background to this is an era in which the corporatization of the university system means that many, and I'll say most universities now operate according to the values and practices of the corporate world. It's all about being productive and in fact, making a profit if possible so that you can make a profit by getting rid of people basically. And aren't we lucky the technology has come into being that enables us to get rid of people so that we don't have to have people coming together to learn. They can stay away from each other and just learn from, from the technology or through the technology. 
Increasingly, students now do online courses. They do not get the interactions with other students. They do not do workshops in class where they're able to practice the skills and develop the skills that are required to do the work that's in, embedded in the course. So where I hope action research goes is that it's a good setup for the corporate world because good action research is actually designed to get a result, to resolve the issues that a group of people have or a problem that a group of people have. Now that should ring true for the corporate world, which does look for results. We can't just write a report and say, oh yes, we've investigated this issue and we've done the job. Action research doesn't work that way. The writing the report is just the start of it. The other aspect of that is when you're reporting, you're reporting on the work of people with whom you're engaged. And the people themselves need to understand what's in the report. They need, in fact, to help generate the report. And they need to have that report to put into forms that they can access, that they can read, that they can watch, and that they can use and show other people in their agencies or in their communities. And they share a big emphasis in university work has always been doing the research and writing the report. Now, for me, report writing has another set of elements to it, and that is finding ways in which the people who were engaged in the research help to develop the reports because reports will necessarily take a different form. There's a report to the university. There's a report to the agency that funded the, the project. There's a report to the people who were centrally concerned with this issue. There's a report to the community to whom the participants, the groups of which they were part. So those different reports all come out of the end product and they should, in fact, include plans for where to go next. Because a good action research isn't, oh, we've done the research, we can stop now. Because if it's a good action research, then there's leverage in there to move out and to do more and better things. And the breakfast program is just one example that I've talked to of leveraging on the skills of the people and getting a successful breakfast program that enabled them to go out and do many other things. And I've given you examples of showing you booklets, videos. I've talked of taking uneducated Aboriginal people to national conferences in the end to give presentations about their work. So this is part of the action research where we build the capacity of the people to do the work that academics used to do. And I've got to say, watching the breakfast ladies give a presentation to a national audience, very powerful. The simplicity of their presentation and the power of what they were saying, this is what we were able to do. And the audience just sitting there amazed that here we have a group of poorly educated Aboriginal people in Western terms providing really significant knowledge to a, a large group of, of professional, a professional audience. That is amazing. So Ernie, one of the things that we like to do on the Action Research Podcast is something called a lightning round to explore some of these perennial questions that people have about action research. 
but in short and simple sound bites so that they can digest it and think about it. I think that's a wonderful process. It's time for a lightning round. Adam and Joe have prepared some key questions for our guest. The challenge is to answer them in the shortest amount of time. What is action research? Action research is a process of working with groups of people to assist them to engage in investigation that helps them to resolve issues and problems of concern to them. Question two, how is action research different from other research approaches? Action research is different in that it works on particular sorts of problems with particular people, but engages the people as participants who previously have been called subjects. Question three, why would someone do action research? Somebody would do action research who wishes to assist people to resolve a problem that is a real concern to them. Question four, what is critical to success in action research? Critical to success is listening, first of all, to find out and to understand the perspective of the people with whom you're working and to work with that centrally as the guiding knowledge for the research that's done. Question five, what is one piece of advice you would give a graduate student considering action research as their methodology? Don't rush in and do things too quickly. You need to listen and learn first before you take action. And your major objective is to assist people, the participants, to take actions rather than do actions on their behalf. That brings us to the end of the lightning round. That sounds like pretty sage advice to me. And great job with the lightning round, by the way. (laughs) This was really so enjoyable. Thank you so much for taking the time to coordinate and come on our podcast. I know that I can speak for Joe and the whole team, Vanessa and Chick. We're really grateful for you to come on. And I hope our listeners enjoyed this interview. And yeah, I hope we can stay in touch and talk again soon. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the action research podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple podcasts. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the action research podcast created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shikha DeWalker, and Vanessa Gold. See you next time.